questions because what I said seemed to be unclear. So I will come back quickly to one or two points and then continue. The point that seemed to be most unclear was uh, the idea I expressed, not my own indeed, but following people like Father Sergei Bulgakov, Lorsky, Lorovsky and others, that the beginning of Genesis could not be considered as a historical description of events, but, to use an expression of Father Sergei Bulgakov, as meta-history, by which he meant that historical events, things that actually did happen, could not be expressed in the language of our days because it belonged to a world that did not exist anymore. And so, whatever was said in this beginning of Genesis was true as to the essence, but not an accurate description of what had happened. This, I think, is a very important for us to remember because then we can understand that a number of fathers had divergent uh, and different comments or explanations of what we read in the first five, six chapters. The reason for it, for this notion of meta-history, is that the world of which were spoken in the first chapter of Genesis and up to the end of the third and the beginning of the fourth chapter is a world that did not exist anymore. A world that had not fallen away from God, that had not, uh, was alien to sin, that had not yet become the world which we know. And we have not got even a vocabulary to speak about a world of that kind. And I will give you oh, one or two images for you perhaps to understand it more clearly. There are things which one can convey in one language to people who know the language and also know the reality of things of which it is spoken but not otherwise. The first example that comes to my mind is something that struck me many years ago. When the uh, gospel was for the first time translated for Eskimos, a problem arose when it came to the words that Christ is the Lamb of God because the Eskimos had no lambs had never seen one, and the phrase meant nothing at all. And in this early translation, instead of using the word lamb, um, they use the word seal. He is the little seal of God. To us, it sounds strange, and um, perhaps even offensive to some. But in fact, it was the only way in which one could convey what the gospel said. Another example is uh, 
from my memory. I remember it, uh, a report written many, many years ago about early missionaries to Central Africa, to that part of Africa which is always scorched by sun, hot, and never had an experience of frost, of snow, or of ice. And when the first missionaries spoke of the experience they had in this country and in other countries of Europe about water coming down from heaven, but not liquid and not warm, but in the form of flakes, white, cold, and of water that was ice, in other words, solid and frozen, they were not believed. And it is only when one of them came on a boat to this country and discovered that snow exists and that ice exists, that they began to understand what it was spoken about. We are in the same position with regard to the very beginning of Genesis. It is a world that had not yet broken away from God. It is a world in which darkness did not exist yet. It is a world in which God and his creatures were in communion and alive to one another. And when the authors of Genesis try to convey to us the events of the creation and the early days of it, they had to use a vocabulary which is that of our fallen world, which means that it is inadequate in a sense, inadequate in the sense that it does not describe exactly the situation, what happened. It conveys to us enough for us when we commune with God more deeply to begin to understand. On the other hand, in the course of history, spiritual writers, the fathers, the theologians have tried to understand what the beginnings meant. The text. No, no longer what was beyond the text, but the text itself. And a variety of comments and explanations were given for different passages. The more simple, the more obvious, the more uncomplicated for our world was given in the story of the fall. And yet, as I tried to convey to you last time, there is a great problem arising from this um, way of explaining things. Because if God had cre has created in paradise, on his own territory as it were, two trees, one that brings life and the other that brings death, and has left Adam and Eve facing both of them, and we are told that the tree of death was attractive and not frightening, it forces us to ask a question. 
What is then his responsibility for the fall of men? And that is a very serious question. Because if God is responsible for our fall, then the whole history of redemption becomes different, acquires a different meaning. It is no longer an act by which a God of love gives his life for creatures that have strayed and fallen and, dead and died. But a God who bears the consequences of his own decision to create a realm of death. And this we cannot accept because it is not the God whom we know. We know a God of love, a God of life, a God who created all things for life eternal and for fulfillment, not for destruction. For a very, very long time, I have struggled with this idea until I came, as I told you last time, upon this passage in the writings of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who reached me through a French theologian called Olivier Clément in an article about this saint, in which St. Irenaeus says that God had created the Garden of Eden, of Eden, had planted there, as it were, that is imagery, of course, two trees, as two possibilities to fulfill one's human vocation and to find one's human fulfillment. The one, the tree of life, let us call him, call it that way, is the way that consists in renouncing, turning away from everything except God himself, communion with him, acquiring what St. Paul calls the mind of Christ, discovering God, discovering God's creation, including oneself and mankind, in and through communion with God, with, through the mind of God, through being at one with him. And the other one is a possibility of making the same discoveries, but by looking deeply, trying to understand the world that surrounds us. Find the creator through its creation. And this would have been a very simple proposition in a way if the creation had remained pure, unstained, and unshaken from its harmony. But the tragedy of it lies in the fact that thanks to the choice made by men, and I will come back to this, this the creation has become a problem. And one can find God by examining this creation, by communion with it, 
by living with it, but in a slow, struggling manner. And the example, the image which I gave you last time, is the way in which we can discover an artist through his works. When we look at an icon, we would say, oh, this is a work of, <coughs> of Theophan the Greek. This is the work of another icon painter, be it even a modern one like Kuspensky or Krug. We can recognize them in their painting. In the same way, <coughs> we can recognize by contemplation, by going deep into the understanding of God's creation, the Creator Himself. This is not the direct, the simple way in which one can discover Him by communing with Him directly through prayer, through contemplation, through silence. But it is a way that can lead either an individual or perhaps a whole generation or the whole of mankind, it does not matter in a sense, to the knowledge of the same God, but through ups and downs. And these ups and downs result in the fact that we commune imperfectly we discover things imperfectly, we hesitate, we believe and disbelieve, but ultimately we can trust God that he has created a world that is an icon, an image that will lead us to the knowledge of him. I have presented to you this idea of St. Irenaeus a little perhaps developed by me and perhaps spoiled by my presentation, for you to see that God did not create a tree of death, but a tree of search. Death comes into it because we are not eternal, but it is God whom we meet in the end. And it is, therefore, possible to go into the knowledge of the created world in order to find its meaning and the God who created it. This makes us look quite differently at the world in which we live, the material world, the world of thought, the world of knowledge, the world of science, because all these elements can lead us to understanding God or us, or else, before we come to an understanding, come to a point in which we are puzzled, deeply puzzled, and ask ourselves ultimate questions. What is beyond what we know? How can we understand 
a world which seems to be ever more complex and beyond understanding. Is it a way in which we are taken away from God? Or is it a way in which we will discover God generation after generation? Because simultaneously with this discovery of God through his works, the other way is not close to us. A scientist may be a believer. A scientist may not be a believer, but in desperate search of, for meaning. And this gives us such hope that the world is not open only to the ascetics and the saints, that all the roads may lead to the discovery of God. This is what I wanted to try to convey last time, and perhaps didn't I convey it today. But I think it's very important for us to look at the world in which we live with interest, with concern, with hope, that even if what we do is not a purely a spiritual activity, if we study the world in which we live from any angle, we study the handiwork of God. And beyond the material discovery, we may discover the author. In the same way in which we can recognize the author of a poem, of a painting, of an icon, of a piece of music. We do not confuse them. We listen and we say, oh, this is only so-and-so who could have written that. It is true about God. And we must, from generation to generation, it's a matter for the whole of mankind to work in that direction. From generation to generation, we must search and in the end, unfold wider and wider, deeper and deeper, our knowledge of the works of God and through it of God himself. Partly because of the marvel, the sense of amazement we have when it unfolds before us and we discover its depth. I was about to say it's harmony. No, because we do not discover only harmony. We live in a world that has lost total oneness and communion with God. And therefore, there is not only harmony and beauty, there is frightening ugliness. It's not only mortality, it's horror at times. When we look at um, the world in which we live, it's enough to be aware of
what happens in one country or another with volcanoes, with fires, with floods, and what happens also through human blindness, hatred. And we must work through it all because this is the way in which we humans have damaged, are damaging the world of God, but are incapable, thanks to him, of destroying it. I'm presenting to you views which are probably not customary, and probably some of you will find that I'm I'm no, I'm not teaching, that I'm presenting to you views which are incompatible with their harmonious vision which they possessed that thus far. Think, I'm not an unbeliever. On the contrary, but I believe passionately in the communion with God which is offered us in prayer, in a life worthy of his holiness and his love for us, of all he gives us, but also we are merged and we are part and parcel of a fallen world and it is in this turmoil that we must find our way. Remember in the Gospel the story of St. Peter drowning while he was walking towards Christ. The disciples have left one side of the Sea of Galilee and were moving to the other side. They were almost by the shore, but they were tossed by a storm. And all of a sudden, at the very center of the storm, at the point of equipoise of all the violence of it, they saw Christ walking on the sea. They cried for fear because they thought it was a ghost. And Christ said, don't fear, it is I. And then Peter, whom we see always ready to move in Elon, said, let me come to you if it is truly you. And Christ said, come. And as long as Peter was looking at nothing but Christ, he could walk on the seas. But of a sudden, he became aware that he was no longer walking on solid ground, that water was under his feet, that he could drown at every moment. And the moment he turned towards himself, he began to drown. But at that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ took him by the hand, saved his life, and he discovered that they were all in the boat and at the shore. That is a way in which mankind and each of us has got to proceed. We are like Peter. There are moments 
when we can go Godwards, not think of anything else, not even ourselves. There are other moments when we suddenly remember the dangers of the world and begin to drown. That happens in major ways, but it happens also in very simple ways when someone gets into despair, feels there is no hope, life is so hard, life is so incredibly cruel, hard to live. And then of a sudden, God enters into our life. If I may say something which probably is irrelevant. I belong to a generation that has known the First World War and the Revolution and the immigration and number of hardships attached to these events. And when I was a boy, I had formed the impression that the world of men was like a jungle. That it, I was surrounded by wild beasts. That the only way of survival was to be totally insensitive and capable of fighting or ready to be devoured and destroyed. And at a certain turn of my life, I was 14 then, Christ entered into it. And I remember that in the first reading of the Gospel, I opened it on a passage from St. Matthew that was saying that God shines his light on the good and the evil, loves the good and the evil, the ones with joy, the other ones with crucifixion. And I remember I sat back and thought, I want to be with God. And so even if I'm burnt alive, I will love the people who do that because I want to be with God. And I think this is a position in which all are, through science, through literature, through art, through music, through human relationship, in peace and in war, in health and sickness. We are walking on this sea on which St. Peter walked. And at the time we walk, because we think of the God of harmony. At times we begin to drown because we remember ourselves, our frailty, the danger in which we are. And at that moment, it is Christ who takes our hand and we find ourselves safely on the shore. This is what we can learn from this beginning of Genesis and also 
from what follows. And then we must reconsider our habitual vision of things, to put it very, in a very primitive way, we always think of Adam and Eve in paradise living in perfect harmony between themselves and in perfect harmony with God. But there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And we are habitually told that Eve looked at the tree of knowledge and found it attractive. And the devil was there who said to her, take of this tree and eat from it. It is a tree of knowledge. You will acquire knowledge. Like God, leaving her to understand, isn't that what God told you? To begin to know all things as I know them. And Eve eats of the tree, of the fruit. And immediately, the world changes from her, for her. It is not a world pervaded with the life and the light of God. It's a world that has become the material world. And she turns to Adam and offers him also to test, to taste of this <coughs> fruit and to discover the world as he had never seen it. And then they both look at one another and as the <coughs> Genesis says, they see that they are naked. Before that they didn't see they were naked. Because as we know from the same book of Genesis, when they were created, they were one personality in two persons. They did not see one another in opposition as different. When Adam saw Eve, he says, I'm he, he's she, I'm I, and she's I in the feminine, as it were. He did not see her as an alien body, but as himself revealed in incredible beauty. It's only after the fall that they look at one another as being different, not I.
and deceit one another's nakedness. And then the Lord says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you walking in the garden and I hid because I'm naked. And who told you that you are naked? Did you eat of the tree of knowledge? The wife whom you gave me, gave me to eat. And the commentary which I habitually presented is that Eve was beguiled. She ate of the fruit of the tree. She shared it with Adam. They discovered that they were naked, in other words, alien to one another. Unity was broken. Oneness was no longer there. And when God appeared, they were afraid. And when challenged, Adam said, I'm in that condition because of the wife you gave me. It's your fault. Well, this is something which I think we can reconsider. I don't mean to say that I am right. I'm offering you an alternative vision of things born of what I have said to you about St. Irenaeus' text. Eve tastes of the tree. Her eyes open, no longer with the vision which God has of his creation, but a created vision of the created world. She offers the same fruit to Adam and he also sees the world no longer in the light of God but in the twilight that has come upon them. And what I find remarkable is his words, it is a wife whom you have given me because he does not renounce her. She remains at one with her. Even in the fallen world, they are not separated. They enter tragedy together. And God enters tragedy together with them. Because this is the turning point at which, which will condition the incarnation and the crucifixion. I find this passage so deeply moving because instead of being simply an act of disobedience, of rebellion, of, of challenging God, of turning away from him. It's a moment of real tragedy. But then you may ask another question. We are told 
that the devil came and tempted Eve. It means, it implies that there was something wrong because he had been created an angel of light. Why had he become an angel of darkness? Ancient writers have tried to give explanations which I find unsatisfactory. The ones say that some of the angels sinned by pride, looking themselves, finding themselves so beautiful, pride came into them and broke their wholeness and their unity with God. Some say that the fall came after the creation of men and jealousy came. How is it that another creature is made which is as beautiful, as wonderful as we are, especially if they became aware of the divine counsel that the Son of God will become the Son of Men. But that is, to me, in both cases, unsatisfactory because it presupposes in them the possibility of evil. And this possibility could have been implanted only by God because it could not have been born out of a perfect being I have found in what one of the ancient writers an explanation which satisfies me, perhaps not you. Lactantius writes <coughs> that the angels of God once created communion with God through worship, through love, through admiration, through communion, became more and more partakers of the divine light. They were gradually pervaded with that light which was God himself, as it were. In a certain moment, some of them one in particular, looked at himself, saw himself fragrant with the light of God and could no longer, in an act of wisdom perhaps, see that his beauty was God's beauty reflected on him and not his personal own beauty. And he exclaimed, I am like God. This was the one who is called Lucifer, the carrier of light, Dinitsa in Russian, in Slavonic. And with him, all those who, like him, having looked at themselves and found themselves 
incredibly glorious felt they have attained total, final fulfillment without realizing that there is no limit to fulfillment, no limit to growth, that however fragrant this life was in them, it was only part of the divine shining. <coughs> and so they fell away because they closed themselves upon themselves instead of remaining totally open to God. And it is one of them <coughs> who came up to Eve and beguiled her in a way to follow his own example. He had learned what it means to be created beauty. And he had not perhaps truly understood that it implied the loss of communion with the only one who is beauty and the creator. And so, we find ourselves almost with an alternative vision of things. It imply, includes the other which I mentioned before. But with such hope, such hope, that even partaking of the tree of knowledge is a way of gradually through the knowledge of God's creation to discover more and more the creator not as at a future date no but in a process while it takes uh, place simultaneously the growth into the knowledge of God <coughs> through the tree of life and the knowledge of God through the tree of knowledge, through his works, through his deeds, through his wisdom, and ultimately through his becoming man and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and opening to us in a new way the simultaneous knowledge of the world created by him, but from within the knowledge of God given us through communion with him. To this I will come next time. I hope I have not troubled your consciousness too much. I hope that you will think of what I have said and perhaps criticize it and find new ways and perhaps can we a little later when I have moved a little long uh, f further along the line of my talks have a meeting at which we could have a free discussion of these things but to me it's such wonderful joy 
to think that the created world is a living revelation of God and that the knowledge of a created world does not preclude the direct communion with God. On the contrary, communion with God gives us light to understand the created world. I will end my talk at this point.